Let's turn to Joel, chapter 1, Yoel. We began this uh, book last Wednesday night on the second day of the new year. And here we are on the ninth day now, ready to continue on. The, uh, the prophecy itself, of course, gives us very little about the person of, of Yoel or Joel, other than the name of his father. And from the writing of the, of the chapters, we can deduce somewhat the time frame that, that he wrote which would have been a lot earlier than some uh, scholars believe, making him one of the earliest of the prophets, possibly even the first of the writing prophets, of the minor prophets as well as of the major prophets. But to get into our study tonight, and we're only going to focus our attention on verses 5, 6, and 7 for tonight. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> But uh, I'd like to read the first seven verses, including what we read last week and studied last week about the locusts and all of that. But here we go in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Yoel, the son of Petuo. And by the way, uh, the word of the Lord is a reminder to us that this prophecy comes directly from God. It isn't something that came out of the mind of, of, of Joel. Or, or any other prophet that may have, uh, as some people believe, may have uh, given prophecies and he, he borrowed them as, as some very liberal uh, uh, commentators think. The reason why it begins the way it does is to make it very clear that this is a message directly from God himself. So the word of the Lord that came to Yoel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, ye old men, and give ear. And I would actually underline or highlight the, the two phrases, hear this and give ear, because this is what this, pro, this prophecy is all about. <clears throat> it is saying you need to listen to what I have to say to you about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord being, of course, the very theme of this whole uh, prophecy. As small as it is, three chapters long, and as I said last week in the Hebrew Bible, it's four chapters, but they've covered up chapter three a little bit. But for us, it's three chapters long. It's not a lot. It's 70, about 73 verses, I think, altogether. But it's a very powerful uh, prophecy because of its focus on the day of the Lord, which we are going to spend a lot of time on in learning about over the next few weeks. Hear this, o, uh, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land, Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Uh, tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Has this ever happened in your days? And he's speaking about verse 4. That which the palmer worm hath left has the locust eaten, and that which the locust has left hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and howl, all you drunkers of, uh, drinkers of wine, 
because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. So we're going to look at verses 5 through 7 tonight, but I'm going to refer back in review to the other verses that we saw last time. But one of the greatest concerns that I have for the Church of Jesus Christ in these last days is the lack of solid biblical teaching on the prophecies of the end times. The lack of the teachings of prophecy in churches today is one of my greatest concerns. And sadly, there are a number of reasons for this. One reason is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would tell his disciples that not many people would be expecting him when he does return since he referred to himself as coming as a thief in the night. Now we see this in Matthew chapter 24, and I'd like you to turn there, uh, because once again, I, it's, it's important to understand from, the, from the, uh, the statement that is made in verse 3 that the old men are to tell their children and so on and so forth. Their children are to tell their children and so on. <clears throat> Excuse me. But in Matthew 24 verse 42, it says, Watch therefore... For you know not what, what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. So to a certain extent, Jesus is comparing himself to the thief in the night. <clears throat> that will come when no one's ready, no one's expecting, except those that should know, like we should know. We should know that any, at any moment or any hour, the Lord Jesus Christ can come for his church. Because number one, he promised it. And number two, he continued to mention it. And number three, he continued to say, be ready. Lift up your heads. Look up, your redemption draws near. Another reason for this lack of, of prophetic teaching in the church today, and I'm not talking about prophecy from the standpoint of people knowing what other people are going through or whatever. No, no, prophecy from the standpoint of what is yet to come. And another reason is, is the influence upon the church uh, that so-called Bible teachers such as uh, Rick Warren through uh, their best-selling books like, like his Purpose Driven Life, uh, the influence upon the church to downplay prophecy and prophetic themes and to consider it as a waste of time actually to study prophecy today. And that to do so is both a negative thing and a very self-centered thing. Now, Rick Warren, who already has a low regard for Bible prophecy, would write in his own book, The Purpose Driven Life, on page 285, and I read it from there today, 
It says, when the disciples wanted, and I quote, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted them to concentrate on their mission in the world. He said, in essence, now listen to what he says. He, I'm quoting him. He says, he said, in essence, Jesus, the details of my return are none of your business. What is your business is the mission I have given you. Focus on that, end quote. Now, when you read the three prophetic passages in the Gospels, known as the Olivet Discourse, the discourse that Jesus gave to his disciples about prophecy and about the end times in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, nowhere do you find that Jesus ever indicated to his disciples that the details of his return was none of their business. Never do you find that. Do you see how he inserted that into his own book? But Jesus is saying to them, it's none of your business what the, the, the last days are going to be. Now, he takes that only from the statement that says, no one knows the day or the hour. I don't know the day or the hour, but I do know one thing. Jesus wants me to be ready. You understand the, the necessity of that? And so, in fact, we find in Matthew chapter 24 and in Luke 21... Two of the longest passages in the scriptures quoting Jesus' own words detailing the signs of his coming. Now why would he do that if it was none of their business? <laughs> yeah, am I getting upset? Probably so. I'll, I'll trim it back. Add to that that the Apostle John's entire treatment of Jesus' coming is found in a book called Revelation. That's all about what is yet to come. Oh, and let's not forget the major prophets and the minor prophets and the works of the Apostle Paul and Peter and Jude. To talk about a time to come. There's a third reason for this lack of interest in end time prophecy, teaching, and, and, and uh, prof uh, prophetic teaching. It, it's that the world's ways and their ideas and their philosophies have seeped into the church. The world's ways, philosophies, and ideas have seeped into the church. And such as the fact that the world will not be thinking about Jesus when he comes because they will have their minds set on other things. So if that's saved into the church, then what is happening to the minds of those that are in certain churches today where they don't teach prophecy? Their minds are on other things. Uh, this, this way of thinking can be labeled today as postmodernism. Postmodernism. As seen in the emerging and emergent church, Postmodernism has taken many in the church captive in the way that they think. They, the prevailing school of thought in postmodernism is that there are no truths, and they adopt the, 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 the philosophical idea that, that truth is, can only be relative, but there are really no absolute truths, and no one can truly come to know the truth. And I've heard some of these emerging church people who are recognized 
by the world as being, you know, tops in the church. I, I would say they're the bottoms <laughs> and bottom feeders, if you will, because they take a lot of people's minds away from what is true. And they will say exactly what I just said. We, we don't really know the truth. There's, there's no reason then to look into the things in the future or, or the prophetic things in the future because, you know, we don't know truth now. What are we going to know about that then? So we see this philosophy not only in the church, but, but folks, we also see it in the political arena as well. Because when the culture of a nation begins to believe this way, they cannot and will not tolerate any one of their politicians or even their preachers to teach the opposite. They will not tolerate anyone who teaches that there is truth. And what we need to consider and remember and do is focus on truth because truth does exist. Absolute truth does exist. That is one reason why our educational system is in such a big mess and close to imploding, simply because truth doesn't matter anymore. Painfully, churches have come to believe what the culture believes, not to mention also wanting to look like the culture of the church. I don't know why we want to look like the world. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to live different. The formula boils down to this. If truth is mostly unknowable, and the, na and the natural logic that follows assumes that there is no reason to look for answers in the future since that is mostly unknowable, then we have fewer true Bible studies in churches today. And I mean any true Bible studies. Anybody can go and take a verse of scripture out of context and say, well, we're going to study this verse today. What? And then I've seen this happen as well. In churches or at Bible studies or home fellowships or whatever. You take a, a, a verse of scripture and then you read it to, to the people that are there. And then you say, well, what does that mean to you? First of all, one verse of scripture read out of context. And, and the question is, what does it mean to you? What are you going to learn about God's truth by doing that when you hear everybody else's ideas and thoughts? So what kind of Bible studies are we having in churches today? And yet the Lord wants us to study. Tells us in scripture, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy. We are to study and to be diligent in that study. And when it comes to prophecy, we need to be even more diligent because to study and understand the last days, we need to know that 30% of the scriptures pertain to prophecy. 30%. I actually think it's a lot more. When you, when you consider a lot of allusions that are found in the, not, not illusions, but allusions with an A, uh, to certain things that are going to happen or certain things that have happened that are going to happen again. And then one last thing before we get back into our text. 
Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, because here Paul says this, and then shall that wicked be revealed. Now, of course, he's speaking of the Antichrist. And I would say that that's an important thing, that if we're told that there's going to be a wicked person come or an Antichrist to be revealed, that we ought to pay attention because it's still in our Bibles. And the time has yet to come that the, the true, this, this Antichrist, this beast that is written about by John later on, you know, a few years later in the book of Revelation, is to be considered. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And notice, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. So we know that's speaking of the Antichrist. Whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. But notice verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. With all deceivableness. There's a word in that word. Deceive is the word. Deceive. Deception. Jesus talked about deception in Matthew 24, mentioning it four times in that passage that, he called, that we call the Olivet Discourse, where he talks about the last days and what's happening in the end time. The deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because, and here it is, they receive not the love of the truth. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And, in, and, and in, in, in a nutshell, without a passion and a love for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God, without a passion and love for that truth, the church simply loses its passion to see people saved by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a passion is lost. You know, you might hear people say, oh, listen, you, should, you, you need a you know, Jesus said, you know, focus more on, 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 on the mission than, than on, on, on prophecy. But if you don't have an understanding that, de- that the Lord is coming back again and he's going to come and settle all accounts with all the judgments that are mentioned in prophecy. How many people, what, what is the motivation then to tell people about Jesus? What then is the motivation? You know, I have mentioned all this to point out that whatever is to happen in the future, there must be watchmen and voices crying out in the wilderness that the Lord is coming, preceded by great judgment. There will be great judgment before Jesus comes. And this is as clear as, as, as can possibly be seen in the scriptures. When you study the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. The fact that the prophet Joel used the experience of a great plague of locusts to stir the hearts of the people that the great and mighty day of the Lord was coming to the earth should give us immediate regard for what is said in scripture about the future. Consider again, if you will, go back to verse 2 where it says, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days? Speaking of this, this, this plague of locusts, has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Did you see anything like this before? Of course, the answer is no. But then he says to them immediately, tell ye your children of it. 
and let your children tell their children and their children and another generation. What does he say? There's something coming. You've seen now an illustration of it. You've seen a type of it. You've seen a copy of it. And it's coming in a greater way. God has showed it to us in a, in a, in a plague of locusts where they have come in, in stages and they've, they've eaten and what they've left, another group comes and eats more and what they've left, another group come comes and eats more until the last group comes and wipes it all out. What we're going to see in the book of Joel as we go through this study is that we're going to see there is truly an immediate coming of the day of the Lord in the sense of what they saw in the illustration of the locusts. Then there was coming an imminent judgment called the day of the Lord. The imminent judgment was going to come upon the children of Israel, both in their their captivities in Assyria and in Babylon. But that was still a type for what Joel is going to teach us is the ultimate judgment that is called the day of the Lord, the seven-year period of tribulation. So the examples of the various locusts and and their levels of destruction point to the levels of destruction coming in the judgments of that great day. And again, I just read the the, uh, verse uh, verse 4 of the mentioning the, the, uh, the locust, that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Each one a stage, a level. In effect, one worse than the other. And we see that happen to Israel. And yet, there's still seven years left in the judgments that have to come to Israel for them to finish that, uh, uh, that chastisement from the Lord. Remember, let's always refer back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. You have to go back to those four, cha- four verses in, uh, in Daniel chapter 9. Because that is telling us of that seven-year period of tribulation. That at the end, when you th- when you read it, you realize that that's the end then of that, of that judgment for them. But it's also going to be a judgment that God uses for the world. Now I did quote from Proverbs 30 verse 27 last week that mentions that the locusts have no king or leader and yet they go forth and perform in groups or regiments or squadrons as if they did. That, that's the, the interesting uh, wisdom of, of, of watching these locusts and how they, how they acted and how they performed. And certainly while that is true, and it is true because the scripture tells us that of the natural movement of these locusts, we also need to see a connection with verse 4 to a statement in Revelation chapter 9. Now, the statement is in verse 3, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. So you can set up the understanding in your mind and keep, keep it in the context 
wherein it needs to be. So in Revelation 9, verses 1 through 3, when speaking of the, the fifth angel that sounded, so it's to sound means, of course, that it was the fifth trumpet judgment. It says, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of a smoke of the smoke of the pit. And now notice verse 3. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And of course then, this is the, the vision that is given to us by John that he saw, which when we look at the whole passage in all of the, uh, the judgments that are given in both the uh, uh, seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the, and the bold judgments of, of, of Revelations chapter 6 through uh, 18, that uh, more than likely he's, he's seeing the movements of, of, of uh, not only armies, but of their armaments as well. So we'll, we'll keep that in mind, but, but that's, that's what he sees, these locusts upon the earth, and, then, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of, of the earth have power. And what is interesting here, why I bring this up, about these particular locusts is that they actually do have a king. Whereas the natural locusts don't have a king, but yet move like they have one. These actually have a king. We read about it in verse 11. Jump down to verse 11, Revelation 9. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. And these words mean destroyer. Both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, those words mean destroyer and are clear references to the devil or Satan. Now this has to heighten Excuse me for a second. This has to heighten our need to seek these prophetic issues out. Especially in the days and the times in which we're living. And I want you also to take note of this. That everything that I've pointed out at the onset of this study can be seen and summarized in verse 5 of Joel chapter 1 as we now move into the next section of chapter 1. Listen to this. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Now, if anything, this prophecy of, uh, if anything, this prophecy of Joel, with its initial mention of a locust plague, is, is clearly a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call, first to the children of Israel and Judah, and also to the nations. Also to all of the nations. 
This verse points to the distress and the disappointment which the people will be experiencing with the coming of the day of the Lord and its devastation. The self-indulgence and lack of concern for the Lord, because that's what we see here in this verse. Awake, you drunkards. What does a drunkard think about? Don't answer that like if you know. I mean, with first-hand experience. But what does a drunkard care about? Obviously, he's self-indulgent. I should say they, because it could be he or she. But obviously, they, they uh, are self-indulgent. And because of that, they lack concern for everything else and everybody else. They weep and they, they howl, it tells us here. Actually, under, under, uh, uh, under command. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And howl, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine. Because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. They weep and they howl, not so much at the destruction and damage and desolation caused by the armies of destroyers, but because the new wine is cut off from them. That's why they're weeping and howling. And by the way, drunkenness is the only sin that Joel actually names in his prophecy. There are other sins that are referred to, but not named like this one. This is the one sin that is named in this short prophecy. Now in the, lake, in the locust plague that took place in the land... The one to which he's referring to and telling, have you ever seen anything like this? So obviously this went through the land so that the people that were there at that moment in time were able to put it together to say, okay, he's using this as an example of something else that's to come. So in that locust plague that took place in the land, the locust had stripped the vines that grew the grapes that would in its process turn water into wine as it were which is what was the concern of the drunkard and the drinker of wine but in a land where where wine was a common table beverage drunkenness would obviously become a problem and it's a problem in every in every country and of course you know it isn't just wine anymore and it's, it's elevated, it's graduated into uh, greater forms of, uh, of, of uh, alcohol and liquor. And uh, it's kind of it's sad that, you know, nowadays, you know, some people are actually attracted to it because now it's made to taste, you know, good, you know, the, the, fruit, the fruity type of thing, you know. What's, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of fruit? It's a healthy thing, right? Fruit's healthy. So let's put it in our, in our beer and in our wine and in our hard liquor and in our rum and in our everything else. Crazy, isn't it? And I'm only mentioning this because the enemy uses it to 
catch people off guard. Make them lose their balance, not just physically, but mostly spiritually. Or, for some, to keep them in a spiritually dead position. It does happen, doesn't it? So this is the reason why drunkenness is a sin and not a disease. And I really don't care what anybody thinks about that. That's a statement that comes from the, the, the scriptures. Not, you know, I don't look at the A, uh, AMA or the A, you know, whatever, the psychiatrists or psychos, whatever they think. It's what God thinks. He didn't call it a disease. He calls it a sin. The world calls it a disease simply because it is, to them, it's culpable behavior. Culpable behavior. What is culpable? Well, blameworthy, responsible, liable behavior. Why? Because a person chooses. A person chooses to go down that way. Nobody's forced to do that. So it's culpable behavior. And sadly, it destroys a person's character. It destroys a home life. It destroys their performance in business or in their work or in their skill while opening doors to crime and every other form of sin. So the locusts were God's warning of worse judgments to come. You think the worst thing that happened was that the vines were all eaten up and you can't have your wine anymore? That's worse than that. We're living in days of sinful pleasure, folks. We're living in days of sinful pleasure and the most careless of people will be caught in the whirlwind of destruction in the latter times. We're seeing it happen. There's a statement made in scripture pertaining to Moses that that should awaken us all to the need to be ready for the days ahead. I'd like for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. What's called the Hall of Faith. Where people like Abraham and Sarah and Enoch and others are mentioned. Well, Moses is mentioned here. And notice, if you will, in verses 23 through 26, that it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. I find that an interesting statement because it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born. By faith, Moses. I mean, Moses is a baby when he's born, like all of us. I think most of us were babies when we were born. Last time I checked, we were all babies when we were born. But he applies faith to Moses as if it was something that was already really given to him. Isn't isn't that interesting? was hit three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, and get this, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That is a powerful statement. 
that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. In other words, he was looking for that reward. He was looking for the reward that would come from God and from his Messiah. In other words, Moses was looking for Messiah. So Moses kept his eyes on the treasures of heaven more than he did on the treasures of Egypt. What this did was keep him from trading heavenly things for earthly things. A lesson that we need to heed as we are compassed about with so much of the world and its pleasures. We are to keep from trading heavenly things for earthly things. You know, the devil, the, the interesting thing is the devil will do everything he can to get us to trade those things in. Sadly, he becomes very uh, successful with some people who have not grounded themselves in the love of Christ, grounded themselves in the word of God, grounded themselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ, grounded themselves in the power of the Holy Spirit, grounded themselves in storing up treasures in heaven and not on earth. This brings me to the life passage that I shared about this past weekend from Colossians chapter 3. Because it says a lot about where our hearts need to be. What our hearts need to be focused upon. And to whom we are to be giving our full measure of obedience and allegiance. Paul says, if, if you then be risen with Christ, Colossians 3 verse 1, if you then be risen with Christ. Now see, I've never understood the pseudo-Christian cults that tell you that you don't really know if you're going to be saved or not. Whereas the scripture is very clear, if you then be risen with Christ, what does that tell you? We can know that we are believers in Jesus Christ, right? So if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. This is a marker for us as believers. It is one of those things that we are to examine of ourselves to see that we're in the faith, that we are seeking those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, Paul just mentions that so you'll just remember where he's at. Sitting at the right hand of God, the Father. Seek those things which are above. That's a good place to seek. Because that's where Jesus is. So he's a good one to seek. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your affection 
If you can enhance the understanding of affection, it would be as if to say, set your heart's affection on things above, not on things on the earth. What is your heart being drawn to every day? My hope and prayer is that it is being drawn to Jesus Christ every day. That that is who we want to seek, that is who we want to know, that is who we want to follow, that is who we want to, uh, want to listen to, that is who we want to be with, that is who we want to fellowship with, that is who we want to com- commune with, that is everything we want to be. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead. Well, that's nice to know. If you understand what that means, you are dead to yourself, to your flesh. You are dead to this world, but you are very much alive to Jesus Christ. Let's stop here for just a second. Let's remember the statement of, G- of, of Paul in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It won't come up here, but just remember it and learn it. And maybe... We ought to memorize it. For I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That really says it all, doesn't it? If we want to understand what it means to be dead, and our life is hidden in God, And with Christ in God, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It is Christ's life in us. That is why Jesus said to to Martha at the resurrection of, of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not just the resurrection just to give you the power to to be risen. I'm the one that gives you power to live forever. That's what eternal life is all about. He is that life. That's something that we as believers in Jesus Christ should be rejoicing and letting people know about every single day of our lives. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. What is Paul saying in that statement? Don't miss it. He says, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is going to appear again so that every eye will see, every heart will draw his affection toward them or toward him. Every heart will know that he is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. Christ who is our life, when he appears, then shall you also appear with him. In glory. Wow. That's keeping from trading heavenly things for earthly pleasures and earthly things. If we have earthly things, they're all for good reasons, things that we can use things that we can give thanks to God for, our homes, our families, 
our cars. We live in a very mobile society. We've got to get around. I haven't seen anybody riding a horse anyplace yet. Well, I did. Down where I live, there's a few horses that go up and down the road, close to the valley. But, uh, but that's more for recreation than for getting around. Honey, I got a meeting downtown, and I live, well, you know, in the east side. I got a meeting downtown. Well, you better start early, honey, because you got a long way to go in that horse. That ain't going to happen. So we give thanks to the Lord for all of those things. So getting back to our text in Joel, I forgot where we were. Joel, Joel is where we are. Let's get, let's get back there. The locust invasion was an illustration then of the defilement and destruction of a real coming invasion. It is something that is going to happen. And so it was a portent, as it were, of something that is going to take place. Look at verses 6 and 7 now, Joel chapter 1. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the cheek teeth of a great lion. Now what's interesting about those those locusts, we'll, we'll read on in just a minute, but what's interesting about the locusts that were described in, in verse 4 that we talked about last week is that uh, they actually have something that's very similar to those kinds of same, the same kind of teeth that, that lions have. You know, so they have, a, they have sets of, of, of certain types of, you know, uh, uh, teeth that can actually really get very strong in, in taking down all of the vegetation, and not just the vegetation, but all the way down through the bark, as you'll see in just a moment. Uh, and they have the, the cheek teeth of a great lion. Now, the, the, the lion uh, example here could mean a, a couple of things. It could also uh, be referencing uh, nations like Assyria, because some of these nations, of course, used a lion as one of their symbols. And both Assyria and, and um, in Babylon, but especially Babylon, and, and more than likely because of that, Babylon may be who's, who's being referenced here. Because remember this, uh, Joel never mentions the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's a, he's a prophet in the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. And so more than likely he's really preparing the people for what's going to happen when Babylon comes and destroys all of the nation of Israel to where they're all scattered and taken out of the land and uh, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed and all of its, all of its uh, gold and everything that was found in the temple was taken out. So I'm, I'm getting just a little ahead of myself, but I, I felt I needed to mention it while we see the, the mention of lion here. So he goes on to say in verse 7, he has laid my, my, vine, my vine waste. God is speaking, and I want you to notice that he uses that, that uh, uh, the word my. As, as um, instead of just a vine or the vine waste, he says it's my vine. He has laid my vine waste and barked. My fig tree. No, that doesn't mean, you know, that these locusts came up to a fig tree and started barking. Like, 
They're locusts, not dogs. Just thought I'd let you know. What it means is to re... <laughs> what it means is to reduce to chips the bark. Reduce it to chips. That's that's shows you the power of the gnawing uh, teeth of these locusts. They would uh, reduce it to chips, my fig tree. But if the locusts were an illustration of what was to come, then whatever nation this is, more than likely Babylon, they've come and destroyed the fig tree, leaving only the shell. That's it. They left the shell of a country barren. He has made it clean, bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. In other words, it, it, it looks like it's, it's been sitting there in weathered uh, uh, times for years and years. You know, you all have seen distressed uh, wood. Uh, sometimes people take it and, you know, do something to it so that they use it for decoration and whatnot. But uh, when it's just out there in the, in the, uh, in the desert or whatever, uh, you know, the sand and the wind and the dust and the rain and everything else just, just wears it all away. And that's, that's really the picture that's, that's being given here. So, so take note of the phrases, my land, my vine, my fig tree. It's God's land. The vine was supposed to be his people in, the, in its fruitfulness. The fig tree is mentioned, and we're going to talk about the fig tree more later. But the fig tree is mentioned because it is a symbol of Israel in prophetic times and used often prophetically. So again, we'll talk about that later. But the Lord was proclaiming his claim to the land of Israel. That's what he's doing. He's proclaiming his claim to the land of Israel. There is not one resolution of the United Nations or of any confederation of superpowers that will ever change that truth. I don't care how many nations rise up in condemnation against Israel for the things that they're doing to stay alive. But God has claimed Israel has his own. And they cannot take any of that away from him. And there's no liberal church in this country that can do that either. Because there are a number of, of churches today that do not recognize Israel in its prophetic time and its prophetic form today. In fact, they become more pro-Palestinian than, than they are pro-Israel when the scriptures are very clear that we need to be pro-Israel. Why? Because number one, they're God's people. Number two, he's commanded us to bless them. And, and, and that, that's enough for me. I will bless those who bless thee was the promise given to Abraham of his descendants. I will bless them who bless thee. I will curse those who curse thee. Well, I think it'd be wise not to curse, but to bless Israel. But those nations that tamper, meddle, or interfere with Israel are always put on notice as to the consequences. 
they are being told, be careful with what you do with Israel. And, 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 and we in the United States, though we have been Israel's biggest supporter and biggest ally, especially since its, its uh, rebirth in 1948, and being that we had uh, the, the bigger hand in bringing them into uh, that status, we are quickly as a nation losing that position. And even though President Trump was the one that, that established the issue of, of moving um, uh, our embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv and, and proclaiming that, that Jerusalem is indeed the true capital of, of uh, Israel, which many presidents said they would, they would uh, not only declare, but uh, you know, would, would, would move their uh, embassy. They never did it, and only President Trump did. An interesting thing. Even with that in mind, as we'll learn as we go along in this prophetic book, we're going to lose our status only because of the way the nation is going. Just this is as I told you, the, the influences today that are changing history, that are redefining history, are, are putting things in people's minds that that even today are, are, are in the news, like this uh, uh, Islamic councilwoman, you know, uh, uh, not councilwoman, uh, congresswoman, uh, I think from Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken, that not only has a foul mouth, but uh, is decidedly anti-Semitic in her statements against Israel. One thing that we see happening and being attempted by the globalist elites today is the dividing of Eretz Israel, the, the land of Israel. I want you to consider, let's go to chapter 3 of Joel for just a moment. I think we're almost done. <laughs> Never trust in that too much. Joel 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, For behold, in those days and in that time, When I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel. Now that pleading is not so much a pleading like if he's going to beg these nations. That pleading is to say, hey, I'm in their court. I'm their defender. I'm their shield. I'm their buckler. I'm their God. And they'll notice whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Wow. He's giving notice. World, be on notice. God's serious about Israel. He's serious about protecting this nation. In Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. Notice, not for the church, not for some substitute, 
for Israel. This is a prophecy of the last days. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and layeth the foundations of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem, not Moscow, not Washington, not Geneva, not Rome, Jerusalem, a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. I would pay close attention to what God's saying about how we view Israel. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. That's getting there. Every vote that is a vote for condemnation of Israel over certain things that happen when they're protecting themselves, every vote in, in, in the United Nations is always more than those who vote against doing anything in sanctioning them. So it's getting there. You go to Zechariah 14, go to two chapters past 12, and Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 3, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Ah, did you notice that? The theme of the book of Joel, the day of the Lord. Zechariah says, The day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. It's going to be an awful time, folks. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in any nation that's going to fight against the Lord. Anybody with me on that? I certainly don't want to be in a nation that's going to fight against the Lord and the Lord fight against them. So getting back to our text, the Lord was comparing the coming invasion, what I called the imminent judgment of the day of the Lord. He was comparing that to uh, the plague of locusts that would attack and completely devastate the land and the people of the Lord. That happened. It happened. When Babylon, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, in 586 BC came and destroyed the city, killed over a million people, took all of the furnishings of the temple, out of the temple, destroyed the temple, took all the gold that was inlaid in the stone, melted it all down, took it with him, and laid the city to waste. By the way, it would happen one more time. It would happen in 70 AD, when the Romans finally had enough, and they destroyed the city. But in doing so, they scattered the Jews to every corner of the earth to wait until the day that they would be gathered again in the land. That happened in 1948. Now, they were gathering little by little up until then. 
1948, they were a nation again. So now it is thought that since Joel doesn't mention the northern kingdom, as I said earlier, the nation that is being described as possibly that of Babylon. But the attack will be so severe that the symbols of success and contentment that Israel represented uh, would have been completely stripped clean of their fruit. And so the first paragraph, or if you prefer this first passage, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1, has its central focus, the need that we have to pay close attention and serious attention to what is being said uh, throughout the whole prophecy of Joel. And as predominant as the term the day of the Lord is in, in, in this prophecy, it is important that we continue to reinforce the understanding of what the day of the Lord is and where we'll find the references to all of them. So little by little, we are going to do that in our study of the, of the book of Joel. But the day of the Lord will be a day of general deception. Let's just start there. It'll be a day of general deception. Throughout this whole world, people are being deceived and will be deceived by all that is taking place in the world. So let's close with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 5. And notice again the prophetic nature of Paul's writing. If it's important of something that is going to happen in the future, which is our future, the nearest to us, then it's something we need to take heed. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, there it is, so cometh as a thief in the night, just like Jesus considered himself as the thief in the night, when people would not be expecting him, the same goes for the day of the Lord. So cometh as a thief in the night, for when they shall say, peace and safety. Peace and safety. That should be the motto of the, of the United Nations today. That's all they've ever said, but that's nothing that they've ever done because there's always been wars and no country has ever been safe. And many of the nations that have been in their security council, quote unquote security council, are nations that have the utmost in, in, in nuclear weapons and in various ways of destroying the whole earth, not just certain countries, the whole earth. Peace and safety. Merry Christmas, right? What a deception. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Why? Because you know it's coming. Why do you know it's coming? Because you've read, you've read to the end of the book. From the beginning of the book. And you know everything that the book says because it says, listen, pay attention, heed, watch, look, take heed, look up, look around, be careful. Because the day of the Lord is coming. 
You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Folks, we have the light of the glory of God. We have the light of the glory of his word. We have the light of the glory of his, of his son who is our light, our life, and our greatest example of love. And so let's, let's keep studying. Let's not set aside anything when somebody says, oh, listen, don't study that prophecy stuff. We don't know what's going to happen, really. Yes, we do. There are 66 books that tell us what's going to happen. And we ought to know them. And we ought to read them. Amen?